0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, a nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country File magazine. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'm the host of the podcast. So, we've been enjoying making a season of podcasts about histories and mysteries in the countryside, exploring ancient places, hearing tales of folklore, and even stumbling across a ghost story or two. But this week, we're heading off to Wick and Fen in Cambridgeshire for a podcast exclusive. In part one of two podcasts, we're taking a walk with a very special guest, Tony Juniper, the Chair of Natural England, which is the body tasked with advising the government on protecting and restoring England's wildlife and wild places. Before taking up his position with Natural England, Tony was best known as a leading conservationist and a very vocal campaigning environmentalist with organisations such as WWF and Friends of the Earth. So it's interesting to see how he has made the journey from campaigner to custodian. We sent countryman Rob York to meet him on a lovely autumnal day in the wetlands of Wiccan to talk about the massive challenges facing natural England and our natural environment. And we even got lucky with an osprey as a special guest.
2: Here I am in Cambridgeshire, standing on the edge of some farmland. The farmer has just asked me what I'm doing with this microphone and I haven't yet told him what I'm going to do, but I'm going to tell you. I'm on my way to interview, have a conversation with Tony De Juniper, the Chair of Natural England at a place called Wiccan Fen. As you can hear, lots of tractors. It's very much a place that feeds the UK. Highly productive for farmland, but also oasis for wildlife and habitat here at Wiccan Fen. And of course, there's also other nature reserve. The Kingfishers Bridge is another example, very close to Wickham Fan. So hopefully, we can talk about some of these items later on. It's a wonderful afternoon here, and I'm walking with the Chair of Natural England. So Tony, could you? Could you give us a little bit a little bit of background about your, in a way, your personal life, way back, where, where you came from, I suppose, your hinterland?
1: Well, I grew up in a in suburb of Oxford, Cowley, uh, in the shadow of what was in those days a really very large car manufacturing plant. And uh, nature, however, was on the doorstep really, um, along the sides of the River Thames various areas of of woodland and natural habitat lying around the city that were accessible by bicycle and it was very early on that that I had this uh, interest in natural history in birds, fish, reptiles fossils and that kind of became a a, a bit of a passion and so um, from a very early age I was developing an interest in in nature and then I think as is kind of uh, you know the the uh, situation of the last decades is that if you have an interest in nature you you kind of naturally then start to get a very strong interest in conservation when you start to understand what's happening to the natural world and actually see it with your own eyes as areas disappear and get replaced with housing and concrete and intensive agriculture and so that youthful experience took me into the world of conservation via a degree at Bristol University in Zoology and Psychology which was really about animal behaviour and then from there into a career in conservation um, which has included work with the Wildlife Trusts, with Friends of the Earth, um, a period with WWF, being a writer, helping His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and many things
2: besides. Let's come on to that. I've got to describe where we are and Tony's just pointed out dragonflies, great hordes of them. There's long views across marshy areas, ash trees, low hedges, any idea what dragonflies those are, Tony? I don't know what dragonflies those are, um,
1: silhouetted like that, but this is one of the finest sites in Britain for for different species of dragonfly and damselfly. And this indeed, Wiccan Fen, uh, was one of this country's first nature reserves acquired by the National Trust in 1899. Mm. And actually what we're looking at across there um, was a wheat field uh, about 25 years ago. And actually beyond that were wheat fields that were there about 15 years ago. And you can see that both of these now are turning into large areas for recovery of, of this kind of wetland habitat And it's bringing results. I have to say, I've been coming over here for about 30 years, ever since we moved to Cambridge, and seeing this place breathing life again for the landscape is is quite something to behold. My my first degree was zoology and and psychology at at the University of Bristol, um, which was really a a, a moment when one considers options. And at that time, in the early 1980s, I thought it was, broadly speaking, either an academic Approach, or or one based more on the practical conservation side, and obviously I went more to the conservation side, and have since then been able to do a lot of
2: different things, which has been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you did more than just do conservationist. I mean, you were uh, an activist, weren't you? I mean, you you were in in a way you were holding um, government to account, uh, working for WWF or Friends of the Earth. So those periods. You then converted, in a way, uh, to becoming a civil servant. What, what, I mean, was it the offer of chair of Natural England, or was it something that you saw the advert, or were you uh, headhunted? Because I think it was Michael Gove, wasn't it, who, who, who brought you in as kind of chair of Natural England.
1: Yeah, yes, Michael Gove hired me uh, to be chair of Natural England, and... In 2019, when I came to the role, I've been lucky enough to have a very varied career uh, on these sustainability and environmental and conservation subjects, including working for a long time as a campaigner with Friends of the Earth Mm. and more latterly with WWF, but also as a writer uh, working um, on quite a few ecological themes through different writing projects. I've worked as a teacher. I lecture at the University of Cambridge and work with executives and others on, on some of these questions and also been an advisor to industry and to some very yeah. substantial major companies and so You know, uh, I, I see the arrival at Natural England as a kind of a logical progression in many ways Considering all the things that have gone before kind of pulling it all together And one of the reasons why I was attracted uh, in coming to Natural England was that in early 2018 you could see that actually the penny had dropped and all of these campaigns and advocacy that people have been doing for years, suddenly it became government policy.
2: Mm, mm. And so it
1: struck me as being a sensible thing for me, having argued for all of this
2: for so long, to actually get involved with the delivery, which is what I'm now doing. Right, right. And then discovering how hard it is. 67, 67 million people in the UK uh, all wanting different things, different audiences. I mean, we'll come on to maybe Natural England's role. Was it hard being scrutinised by the MPs just before you became... The head honcho of Natural England. Well, you know, were there any kind of curveballs from the past? But part of the process
1: involves being scrutinised by, by select committees. Um, the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee and the Environmental Audit Committee, they, they had a combined hearing to consider my uh, suitability for the role. And, um, well, that was very interesting. And I, I look back on that and I remember some notes that were circulated beforehand which basically uh, were about the extent to which the hearing was not only about the substance, but also one's ability to be able to withstand quite hostile questioning in public. They're
2: right. And, uh, you know, the, yeah. there's been plenty of that since. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, we could touch on that, but let, let's just, let's again, just give a kind of ambience. We're just walking down a, uh, a high bank, which I presume is all to do with, this is a very, this has been managed for agriculture, water levels highly maintained, uh, there's some Highland cattle over there, slightly unusual looking. Cattle in the distance, some pylons running away into the far distance. Silence at this time of year, not, not, not much bird life. Is that because it's uh, um, kind of molting season? What, what's well, we're into not as so much birds.
1: We're into the first day of autumn today, and so many of the, the summer migrants are either recently departed or preparing to go. Uh, Many of the winter birds are not here yet, and even if they were, they wouldn't be making a lot of noise. This place, uh, by comparison, in the early part of May, is really jingling and jangling with birdsong. It's quite incredible uh, when all of those uh, summer visitors join the the, the, uh, resident birds here. But this is a quieter time of year. There are still Mm. plenty of insects flying around, some birds, but they're mostly quiet.
2: Now we're now walking along, and it literally is wind in the willows. I'm not sure if you can hear the sun coming through. There's an old ash tree on the left-hand side here. Um, Lots of reed beds. And Tony and I have just been discussing agricultural land, but we're going to come on to maybe food production. What I want to ask you, Tony, is natural capital. Some people say that there's kind of jargon. There's a lot of jargon around. It makes perfect sense once it's explained. Could you? It's a tough one, this maybe. Could you explain natural capital in a simple sentence? For
1: me, the attraction of of natural capital uh, is the extent to which we can see parallels with financial capital. And everyone would understand looking after their capital assets in order to get some dividends or some kind of return, some kind of interest. And so it goes with nature and the idea of keeping our natural capital assets intact so that we get that flow of benefits into the future including for carbon capture for food supply for water replenishment for pollinating uh, crops for public health and well-being all of these things they have a value and they're the dividends we get from intact natural capital assets and so I think that is an important way of looking at all of this because quite a few people uh, who have resisted the environmental uh, arguments over the decades, they've kind of seen looking after the environment as a choice between that and economic development, and it's not. It's the same thing. And you can explain why it's the same thing through this prism of natural capital and being able to unpack those values and to reveal to everybody that actually intact nature is providing us with a great many benefits that we can't do without. And so keeping the natural capital strong and healthy, it becomes an logical thing to
2: do. And here we have a just come... Canada... Geese coming straight towards us, and they veered up over the top. Are there some more still out there? I can see no, some there's, there's straight through. There's quite
1: a lot there. of geese here. There's is it Canada or they're, they're, they're the
2: grey leg? lags?
1: Okay, grey uh, lags. there are some Canadas, and there's a group of lapwings just going into that wetland over there. Nice. Which is nice to see. I wonder where they will have bred. Around yeah. here, they might have struggled, um, but. Yeah. And look,
2: there's a huge. Yeah, I can see them whirring
1: down. There's a whole stack more coming in. Yeah, there's several hundred lapwing coming in there, which is really encouraging to yeah. see. In now, fact,
2: oh. I think probably just a
1: quick estimate there. There's probably 500 of them. That's great. Now, Um, do you
0: think
2: they have bred on the farmland? Those are Well, they've come from somewhere. I don't know
0: how many of
1: them will have bred around here. I mean, one of the things that is controversial uh, in conservation is the extent to which we might want to be thinking about predator predator control as a way of being able to protect the populations of birds like lapwings. And from what I've seen, actually, this can make a massive difference, positive difference, but uh, there's not much of that going on around here. And as a result, I would think their productivity is probably quite low uh, in when, this
2: part of the country. Right, right. Is that because they're on agricultural land or are you saying it's because it's on Wiccan Fen and there isn't any predator control? Or are you just saying... Yeah, I, I think, I think in, in, in East
1: Anglia, broadly speaking, there's not a lot of predator control and I don't know what the productivity of lapwings yeah. is like uh, around uh, this part of the world. But from what I've seen from the scientific literature... One of the big problems facing breeding waders in this country, red shank, mm. uh, curlew, lapwing, it is the effects of, of foxes and crows on their chicks and eggs. Mm. And so um, that number there, there's a, there's a, there's a good few hundred, five hundred perhaps there, th- yeah. that is encouraging to see.
2: Predator control, predator management, that almost brings... I mean, I want to get back to natural capital because there are some people... Uh, who don't like putting a value on nature as they see it. But you, oh, well but they, that's what you've tried to do, Tony, over your time yeah. is to connect because that's what drives people if, if, yeah. if, if it pays its days to put it in very blunt terms. Well, people have always put values on nature it's just that
1: this is a different value to what some conservationists have had in mind and this intrinsic value the idea that we should look after nature for its own sake, I fully subscribe to that and I believe that is exactly the right mm. thing to be doing mm. but it's not the only reason why we should do it. We also need to do it in order to protect the scientific uh, values of nature and being able to study it for the aesthetic values, this beautiful Mm. view Mm. we're looking at right now spiritual values and that sense of connectedness and also the practical economic values Mm. and I don't see these things as separate, I see them all as coexisting. and some people think oh well if you're going to advocate the economic values then you're abandoning the intrinsic no, far from it, if we're going to secure the intrinsic values one of the best ways we're going to be able to ensure that is by reflecting in the economic values, because in the end, it's the economic choices which are destroying nature, not the fact that we don't love it.
2: Yeah, that's a uh, that's a uh, that's wow. Okay, let's. I mean, it's impossible almost to unpack that in the time we've got, Tony. Uh, and I suppose that brings. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, that brings me on to the role of Natural England in enabling uh, conservation, uh, managing wildlife regulating, issuing licences, such uh, a, wide, a wide remit and of course funding is always going to be hard. I suppose maybe, as you've kind of raised it earlier, kind of predator control. Um, so processes, we want natural processes to go on but humans are part of the ecosystem. Are you trying to marry up our role within ecosystems within a highly urbanised nation such as the UK? Yes, I mean, the the reality of, of England
1: is a country that is one of the most densely populated on Earth with massive demands on the limited land and sea for food, for housing, for infrastructure, for energy supply, for carbon capture, for nature conservation. And so inevitably what we have to do is find the best fit between the human demands and how we're going to sustain and recover nature. And to suggest that somehow, you know, we can do these two things in isolation, look after the people at the same time Mm. as the nature. I mean, it's just not a real world question. So what we have Mm. to do is work within these complex demands to get the best possible outcomes that we can. And one of the most exciting things that I think is going on with our work at the moment, and indeed this is a wider agenda item uh, across the entire conservation world, is the shift that we're going through at the moment, whereby we're moving beyond... This historic task of maintaining and hanging on to little remnants of habitat and remnant populations of animals and plants are moving instead into this period of nature recovery. Now can we do nature recovery alongside all of those competing demands? I think the answer is very much yes. So long as we have the right kind of motivations and can find the right ways to integrate all of these different things, food production, housing, infrastructure. Can we modernise and maintain all of that to get what we need from it at the same time as bringing nature back and recovering ecosystems and species? We can
2: do it food, housing, uh, looking after nature recovery. Let's talk about the first one. We generally eat breakfast before we look for butterflies. That's how I might phrase it. Tony, how do we... I mean, you are on the Food Strategy Steering Committee. And they've just brought the final report out. It's a big thing to bite into. Should England be looking hard at where it takes its food from?
1: Yes, every country must do that. And the thing about the uh, new national food strategy, uh, which is a real breakthrough, it's an excellent piece of work. And I take my hat off to to Henry and Tamsin and, and Dustin and all of those who worked on it to pull together that substance. The real breakthrough there is the integrated view that they've brought Because food touches everything, uh, but so often we find that we're dealing with one subject at a time. Affordability today, obesity tomorrow, the following day it's pollution, the next day it's climate change, then it's animal welfare, then it's whether we're going to import or export and trade policy. And actually what we need to do is to look at it in the round, because all of these things, they touch each other. It really is genuinely a question of how we grapple with the whole system. And so moving beyond that issue by issue and into a holistic view of food and farming including agriculture is a vital thing
2: now include sorry sorry i didn't mean to interrupt like that but including agriculture i mean I, I i would say that agriculture the big is the elephant in the room and as soon as we make this holistic it becomes more complex well, it becomes more complex, but then
1: again, it is complicated. So we could carry on treating it as a simple issue, which it isn't, yeah. and then not get very far and pay enormous costs as a result. Or we could try to grapple with all of these different moving parts and find some right ways forward. Mm. And when it comes to the nature side, which obviously is, is the work at Natural England, uh, very much this needs to be a, an accommodation between our need to promote food security and healthy diets at the same time as reversing the losses of biodiversity and achieving net zero. And all three things there... Climate, food and nature are government priorities. And what we need to do is find ways to move beyond one trumping the others. And, you know, that's never going to get us very far. So how do we rebuild the natural fabric of the landscape at the same time as being able to promote uh, as much domestic supply as possible. That's then about land use planning, it's about the way in which we use incentives, it's about how we move towards more sustainable methods. But it can be done and in different parts of the country you can see this as now work in progress and the really big opportunity that we've got uh, which is coming through at the moment is the new post-EU agricultural policy which will enable us now to go on this journey of maximising from the landscape, not only food but also the climate change mitigation and adaptation benefits bringing back nature, purifying our rivers and that therefore then contributing to public health and well-being and resilience in a world of change. So that, that seems to be where we're going, which, which is a fantastic moment
2: to, to see. Mm, mm. As part of that change, obviously the population of Indians has got to maybe adapt what it's eating. Uh, that seems to be You know, there are some great ideals within what we must be farming, but that depends on the population of England changing what they're eating, not just food waste, but eating less meat, higher quality meat, but that involves the whole beast. Can government help structure some of these debates? Because otherwise it's left to the activists and the campaigners who you used to hang with. Can government help? the national conversation on some of these really tough issues. Well, government's got its hand on a, on a whole
1: load of, of levers uh, which can be used in every area of of, of of interest, including food, and they include switching subsidies into payments for environmental goods, regulating and setting standards for um, pollution of water courses and animal welfare, for example, and, of course, then raising awareness about some of the questions so that consumers can take action themselves. And then alongside the consumer and the politicians and the policymakers, are also, of course, the major corporations who, and indeed the smaller businesses uh, who provide all of our food, pretty much. Very little we grow ourselves these days. Most of it is coming through some kind of supply chain. And so all of these actors working together can lead to better outcomes than anyone working on their own. But government, you know, it's obviously central to the... Uh, whole piece in terms of setting the, the direction and then putting the policies behind to, to make sure the direction stays true. Mm. And we're in that process of change at the moment, whereby these various subjects linked to natural capital and climate change are coming in alongside food security, and the policy is beginning to shift. And at Natural England, you know, the role we have there it really is about delivery and making this stuff real
2: on the ground. So we're coming out now into the open... And uh, there's another view into the afternoon setting sun. There's some tall tall poplar trees. I can't see if they're what type of poplar trees. There's some willow and some low scrub here and some reeds. You can hear the reeds rustling.
1: This scrub and reed bed that we're looking at now, 15 years ago it was a wheat field, and, and this is part of the wider. Wiccan vision. And I love walking here because this is such a great example of what is now the new agenda, which is about nature recovery. So behind us we've got the old reserve that's been there for 120 years and which has been fantastically important in conserving the biodiversity and landscape. But now we're expanding across uh, with the National Trust leading uh, this landscape scale work to
2: bring back a lot of what's gone. Okay, so the fact that we're so the fact there was a wheat field here um, means there's obviously a wheat field elsewhere. This is quite a big subject. Is there? And it came up in the food strategy, this idea, and whether listeners, whether you want to explain in the short time we've got, the idea of sharing and sparing land as just one model of agricultural land use. Yes, there's been a debate
1: in the conservation community about whether we should uh, intensify agriculture in those most productive lands, thereby sparing other land for conservation, or whether we should be sharing uh, the landscape, so less intensive farming, but maybe with more patches of of scrub and hedgerow and blending the nature into the landscape and of course you just think about it for a moment and you realise that it has to be both of these things plus a whole lot besides and you know you can't make much sense of that sparing or sharing piece without looking at the whole system and so for example the wheat field that was growing here 15 years ago uh, a lot of the wheat being produced in this country is being fed to animals uh, in Uh, factory farming uh, situations and so the extent to which we might move more towards grass-fed and more extensive uh, meat production would be one of the factors which tells us whether actually we've got enough land to be able to do more of this kind of thing and actually in the National Food Strategy one of the most striking statistics that came out of that for me was the calculation that if we took the least productive 20 percent of england's land and put it into nature conservation that would impact on our food supply by only three percent and then if you think about what we could do to reduce our food waste you realize that actually we've got quite a lot of choices beyond simply saying it's food or nature it needs Mm. to be both and it can be
2: Mm. but that also means that some of the farmers become in a way landscape managers or let's say wildlife managers exactly in the you know, the less productive areas. Can, can I just also kind of take issue with the expression factory farming? I mean, mm. all farming is an industry um, and extensive, extensive farming means you're going to take more land from wild nature and bring it into farmland. I mean, there the, well, you know, are quite... Well, so the more extensive agriculture is compatible with
1: nature conservation very often. And if you look at what's gone on at NEP, Uh, where the the rewilding down there has been associated with the use of of large grazing animals, which in turn are in the meat supply chain. You see a very strong synergy there between conservation of the land, uh, the production of some food and the return of the wildlife. Whereas if you're putting animals in cages and feeding them a vast amount of of grain that's produced on land that could be feeding people or which is then... uh, putting into uh, conservation management there is a big choice there, there is a yeah. big difference between yeah. the two and the phrase is I can understand how people uh, react differently to them but there is a, a major difference between an extensively reared animal living on a pasture compared to one that's been uh, very intensively reared in cages being fed crops and being fed antibiotics yeah. too.
2: Well well, I think some of farmers might take issue on being fed antibiotics because they say that's what they don't do unless they require them. We've just been interrupted by a cock pheasant there in the background another one uh, probably say we're getting too controversial here on the podcast but I think we I think we could explore it when you said animals in cages you're talking about um say poultry you're not talking about sheep okay but I mean I mean pigs are it's a slow it's a slow movement away from um let's say contained livestock because there's a lot of inter- infrastructure that's got to be undone policy has to help food producers head that way there's you know it's do you think some of the conversations get stuck on the semantics when in fact we could have much more open conversations rather than sticking to ideology about what certain words mean yeah. and and you know say everything's <coughs> everything's up for grabs now in this new post common agricultural um coming out of europe
1: yes the uh, uh, the, the the you know the the the, the uh, it's not right to say that the slate is completely clean because there's a lot of momentum in the system going back decades but we are entering a new period and in that new period one of the things that we need to foster is dialogue mm. uh, quite a lot of what crowds into this space uh, concerning conservation and the environment and sustainability it does very often get quite polarized and uh, that, obviously, you know, is not a great way in order to be able to, to foster collaboration and partnerships, which is exactly what we need in order to be able to solve these problems at scale. So we do get kind of stuck, and part of it is about ideology, for sure.
2: Yeah, yes, and, uh, and you did use a word just earlier in the discussion, rewilding, um, which, which is, and I interviewed on behalf of um, Countryfile magazine in 2013, George Monbiot so uh, you know the, 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 there's been quite a journey on that issue and it's like maybe it's not me I should be asking you this but I'll, I suppose I'll say my little bit now is rewilding as I see it is another tool for conservation but it's been wielded as a weapon against existing land use and you're right about Polaroid now what have you seen you've just pointed up pointed your binoculars That's way Now look at that, an osprey, high in the blue sky. it's um, it's that
1: time of the year when everything's on the move, and um, uh, it's quite quiet, but still, in the quietness, you can see some incredibly wonderful things. And there it is, an osprey passing by, Uh, and that could be the same one I saw around here back in April, going the other direction. Uh, So that bird is flying south, look, and (laughs) um, uh, when I saw it in April, well, just around here... There was one flying north. Whether it's the same one, we'll never know. But there it is,
2: an osprey. Now, that's fantastic to see. I mean, I always think of ospreys as loch Garten, way up yes. in the Scottish well, Highlands, but it's on the move.
1: This, this is, this is the, um, yeah. uh, the, yeah. the hope that we can see for nature recovery, is that some of it is actually recovering. And I remember as a youngster, you know, the osprey, it was only loch garten And now here we are in Cambridgeshire, yes. and we can see them most years. And uh, Natural England are doing
2: lots of good work with birds of prey. I mean, the hen harrier action recovery plan, working with a government, it's, it's early days, but but the media were were reporting, I think, this year, more hen harriers in the uplands. Uh, it's obviously yeah, early had, days.
1: Uh, it's early days, but we've had three good years of, of uh, improving... Breeding success, and you know, the population is still far away from where it needs to be. But I, in my bolder and more optimistic moments, I think we might have turned a corner with that bird. Mm. And this is where the question of collaboration um, becomes very, very important because yes, people are quite right to raise concerns about illegal persecution and then to link that to some of the practices in the uplands. But if those practices are going to change in the uplands and people are going to change their mind, then we need to have a conversation that's going to want people to be part of the solution rather than endlessly being blamed Mm. as as being the whole problem. And, you know, I do hope that over the coming years we can move beyond... Uh, some of these trenches and and get into a a much more productive discussion which will
2: actually over time put the hen harrier back to where it needs to be yeah and and so that brings me back to rewilding you can have hen harriers and you can have rewilding you can have different forms of food production we maybe need to provide more space to have those conversations to allow people to move Um, but i can maybe i'm being naive in that conservation needs funds environmental NGOs need funds, they need recruitment and so sometimes the media does it highlight these issues in a wonderfully juicy way so they get more readers, it creates that partisanship. Uh, Obviously Natural England are trying to sit high above it because you're you're trying to do the work and stay removed but also you have to stay engaged. Yeah, we do have to stay
1: fully engaged with all of these different interests who have uh, particular views and, and agendas and priorities. And, you know, very often they can work together and probably they don't work together as much as they could because of some of these... Uh, apparent polar opposite ideas that are thrust into the discussion should we feed the world or should we do rewilding mm. should we protect the green belt or should we build houses should we have beautiful views protected forever or should we have wind turbines and so on and so forth and it goes along and that will always be um, a very important part of the discussion is to understand those different choices and to understand the different interests that sit behind those different choices but we've also got to move beyond that mm. if we are going to be able to turn back the tide of biodiversity decline in this country and indeed anywhere else we're going to have to deliver big landscape scale change and considering how pretty much every landscape in the country has got multiple interests in it from the water companies to the infrastructure providers to local government to people uh, who want to have homes. You know, we have to bring people together to be able to plan this in the best possible way. And Le- that requires getting above those polar uh, yeah. binary opposites. Right.
2: Yeah, great. Well, I mean, let's just talk about water very briefly. Um, let's, keep, let's, let's keep going now. So when, when Tony was talking then, there were two shots in the far distance. Um, don't know what they were. They were a long way away. Um, Carrion, crows, rooks, Should we just talk about predator management, predator control? Mm. And the role that Natural England have in that you are looking after nature, but at the same time you're issuing licences maybe to release or to control. Let's just talk about the control, having to control wildlife, whether it's for an airfield, a supermarket, or someone working um, out in the open open countryside and trying to keep animals off their, off their livestock. Is licensing an easy job in the modern world?
1: One of the jobs that we undertake at Natural England is the licensing of wildlife management and this ranges from control of of animals that are causing problems through to the reintroduction of ones that are missing Uh, and so the reintroduction of the white-tailed eagle ongoing at the moment is supported by Natural England's licensing functions. So it's a broad set of uh, issues in there but when it comes to control in order to uh, limit a problem there are really three headings to this. One is the protection of public health and safety and so gulls uh, on airfields would be an example of that and the need to control them. Another one would be uh, the damage to property uh, including uh, birds that are damaging crops or livestock and then the third heading is in relation to conservation and whether we need to control things like crows uh, in order to be able to protect nesting waders and so there's a lot of complexity right there in terms of those three headings and the extent to which we need To be able to undertake proportionate management and to use it as a last resort generates an awful lot of complexity and a lot of controversy. But the reality is, in a country as densely populated as ours, with so many demands on the land, we do have to manage the wildlife some of the time. And so that's just really a reality of of where we're at. And nobody celebrates having to kill anything. Uh, But at times, you know, there will be moments when intervening uh, to uh, protect one of those headings, health and safety, property and livelihoods and and, uh, conservation, we need to do it. Now, actually, just one one example on this, Rob, which is a good one, I think, um, is the curlew head starting we've been doing this year, where we've been removing curlew eggs for air safety reasons to get the birds away from runways on RAF, RAF aerodromes and also on commercial aerodromes, civilian aerodromes. We've been taking those eggs and historically they've been destroyed, but now we're investing in a partnership project with the RAF and others to be able to hatch these eggs in captivity and then to release the birds head started to hopefully bolster the population in parts of the country where it's declined. And so that's turning um, a difficult choice, having to manage curlews off of airfields, hopefully into something which is going to benefit their conservation
0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
2: It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home.
0: Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? of Rob York's interview with Tony Juniper, the chair of Natural England. You can listen to part two next week, where we find out more about Tony's mission with Natural England and what big plans there are for England's wild environment. And we also find out what meal he would serve the leaders meeting at COP26 in Glasgow. And if you have any comments about the issues Rob and Tony talked about, or any rural issues at all, please contact me, Fergus Collins, on my email address, which is editor at countryfile.com. And we'll include your comments in future podcasts and also in the print edition of BBC Countryfile magazine, which you can find in all good news agents and find out more about on our website, countryfile.com. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, any episodes that you've heard, and please do leave feedback and ratings on whichever podcast provider you use. It's such a huge help to us. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week and goodbye for now.